We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John 7, verse 25, and we'll pick up there in a moment. If you are new or you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back that you can grab, that you can keep, uh, that you can take for yourself or a friend. Uh, we will be picking up in John 7, verse 25 in a moment. Uh, by way of reminder, last week was Easter, so we took a break from our series through the Gospel of John to specifically celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But the Sunday before that, we were in the narrative of John, and we saw Jesus who was in Galilee, sort of more on the margins up north, and he moved from there up to Jerusalem, up to the temple, to the center of power in their day and age, to the center of their world in many ways, to celebrate the Festival of Tabernacles. Every Jewish man was expected to make this pilgrimage and attend this festival. Many of them brought their families with them. Uh, so Jerusalem is packed. It's the biggest festival of the year. And Jesus begins teaching in the temple courts. And as he's teaching in the temple courts, you might remember from two weeks ago, the crowds are amazed. Uh, there's sort of a mixed review, but many are uh, beginning to place their faith in him. And yet at the exact same time, the religious leaders and those in power are sort of behind the scenes plotting his execution uh, as this is happening. Uh, this is what we read next. This is chapter 7, verse 25. So at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly in the temple, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Where he go, will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and in a loud voice said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in would later receive. Up to that point, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? 
Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one has ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Let's pray. Jesus, we turn our hearts, our minds toward you, Lord. We bring you uh, our faith this morning and our belief. Uh, some of us may be bursting with faith and, and some of us may be uh, searching our hearts and just finding a, a, a little mustard seed, a, a little spark uh, of faith within us. But we come uh, with our faith and with our lack of faith. We come with our belief and our unbelief. We come with all of our own uh, conflict and tension uh, to a scene that we've just read um, full of conflict and tension. And we, we just pray in the midst of this, Lord, with our own struggles, with our own doubts, with our own questions, um, that you would meet us just as you met these crowds, that you would uh, speak plainly to us, and that we would be among those uh, in the crowd of our culture who have ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, who are uh, receptive to you uh, and to your truth, uh, who makes space for you uh, in, in uh, all that you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus teaches at the Festival of Tabernacles, there is great tension in the air. And John captures through these chapters a series of conversations and arguments between Jesus and the religious leaders and the crowds, which actually span several days of festival time. Uh, but it is laced with tension and irony and confusion along the way. Uh, is Jesus good or is he a deceiver? Is he the Messiah or is he demon-possessed? Uh, do the leaders think he's the Messiah? Should we then believe he's the Messiah? Uh, at one point, the crowd essentially says to him, man, you, you are demon-possessed. You have lost your mind. Who's trying to kill you? And then as you continue to read, just a few verses later, the crowd's turning and talking amongst themselves, saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Which, in and of itself, does not make sense. But you uh, get this sense as you're reading that at multiple levels, the crowds are in this state of uh, conflict and contradiction and sort of ironic tension and confusion as they interact with Jesus. Uh, and in the midst of this confusion, with all the different speculation and theories that are flying around, uh, they sort of take a stand as the crowds. And they essentially say, hey, we don't know what to believe, but this we do know. Number one, when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from. 
He'll sort of come out of nowhere. We won't understand his origins. And two, we know where Jesus is from. Now, ironically, both of these assumptions are false. In reality, Scripture does say where the Messiah will come from. The prophets make it clear in advance that he would come from God, that the uh, virgin would give birth, and that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Uh, but that doesn't sound like anyone that I can think of. Um, and so they keep, uh, they've sort of ignored that. Instead, the crowds assume actually that Jesus is from Galilee because that's where he's living at the time. So they assume he's from Galilee. Uh, they totally miss the whole uh, Bethlehem thing, and they don't comprehend that ultimately he's from God. So they don't understand his, uh, what the scriptures say or who Jesus is or where he's from. So he tells them very plainly. He says, hey, I've come from the Father. I am one with the Father, and soon I will be returning to the Father. He, he lays it out before them. And in response to these sort of bold, clear statements about his origins, uh, the leaders sort of withdraw and begin plotting his execution. And the crowds who are listening think that he's planning a trip to Greece. This is, this is how dysfunctional things are. He's like, no, I'll tell you plainly, this is it. And then you see all of these strange reactions from the people who are listening. But the key moment of the narrative, I would argue, isn't all of the debates about his origins and the Messiah and all of that. Uh, the key verses in today's narrative actually uh, start in verse 37, in which Jesus stands up on the last and greatest day of the festival to make an announcement. And remember, for context, that he's at the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, it was sometimes called the Festival of Booths. And a booth or a tabernacle was a tent. And so during this festival, uh, the Jewish people would all come together in and around Jerusalem. And for one week, they would live in tents or booths. And they would remember when they were rescued out of Egypt through the Exodus and lived in tents in the desert. And God sustained them there. Uh, but when it came to practicing uh, and actually celebrating this festival, much of the celebration centered around water. And the reason it centered around water uh, was threefold. So first off, as they come together to celebrate the Exodus and remember being sustained in the desert, one of the things they're celebrating is that while they were in the desert, somewhere around two million people were sustained by water that God miraculously supplied from a rock. So in the middle of this desert landscape, two million lives are on the line. This miraculous thing happens. Streams of water come flowing out of a rock, and they're sustained. So part of the Festival of Tabernacles is looking backward and remembering, oh, wow, God supplied abundant water for us in the middle of the desert. Uh, the Festival of Tabernacles also functioned as their annual harvest festival. It occurred in the fall. And so they would bring all of their harvest, and they were celebrating that at the same time at this festival uh, and remembering that God had given them adequate rainfall. So, hey, right now, the things that we're holding in our hand, the things that we're eating at this feast, they all come from the rainfall uh, that God supplied this year. 
Uh, not only that, but Festival of Tabernacles was also forward-looking. If you go back and read the Old Testament, there's this vision that the prophet Ezekiel has. And it's sort of this uh, Eden-like garden with a uh, restored, renewed temple of God, beautifully crafted. And out of the temple, curiously, uh, there's this water that begins to flow from the altar. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and wells up into this river that begins flowing out into creation. And the things that it touches are transformed from death to life. It, it even goes to the Dead Sea, which is literally like dead. Nothing can live in it. And it touch, flows into the Dead Sea, and it transforms the Dead Sea. And all of a sudden, all of this life starts to spring up, and it keeps going out and out into creation. And so at this festival, water is being celebrated in three different capacities. It's, hey, we're looking back and remembering the water of, that was miraculously supplied in the desert. We're celebrating the present and the rain that's fallen this year, the food that God supplied for us. And it's looking forward to the day when God's kingdom will come in full, when this beautiful vision of Ezekiel uh, will come to pass and, and new life will flow out of the temple of God and transform creation in the process. So during the Festival of Tabernacles, one of the ways they would mark or celebrate this was that it was a seven-day festival, and every day for seven days, the priest would walk in sort of this uh, solemn procession from the temple, uh, which is at this high point in the city, sort of down a little ways to the Pool of Siloam, which is a rare water source in Jerusalem. And they would fill up buckets, and they would march back up and pour out these buckets of water on, at the altar in the temple. And so you would get this water that was being poured out and sort of flowing uh, out of the temple and uh, as a means of celebrating these things. Uh, this, it was this picture of abundance and blessing and also a sort of symbolic anticipation of the kingdom that was to come. Um, and if you go back and look at the Old Testament and the imagery and the prophets, what you'll see is that water often came to be symbolic of things like life and blessing and salvation, uh, both generally and specifically. And eventually, that imagery gets honed a little bit more and uh, really comes to be associated with eternal life and the Spirit are all sort of embedded in that uh, abundance of water from God imagery. So you have to picture that it's the last day of the festival. It's sort of the, um, the climax of the grand finale. Uh, there's this great water pouring that's happening, but there's more than usual on the last day as everyone gathers to celebrate. It's flowing out of the temple, and all of a sudden Jesus stands up and says, let anyone who is thirsty Come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Can you imagine? I mean, this would have had a, a stunning impact on the crowds who were gathered there. Jesus is essentially claiming to be the true rock in the true desert giving living water to those who come to him. Uh, he is the new and true temple, uh, replacing the old from which God's blessing and salvation and new creation will flow. 
Uh, and not only that, but when you come to him, Jesus is saying, you go from sort of a thirsty slave held captive to the things of this world, and you shift into this place uh, of being a freed son or daughter of God into a new creation. And he's saying you, you are so uh, changed through this process and being filled with the Holy Spirit that, that this uh, God's blessing and salvation and life and spirit actually begin to well up in you to the extent that they overflow and flow out into uh, the thirsty and dead world around you. So he's saying, hey, if you come and follow me, rivers of living water will flow from within you. which is remarkable. And because he's tapping into uh, multiple images at once, we actually get a really beautiful picture of what he's talking about. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger says it this way. He says, both the Exodus journey and the beautiful vision of Ezekiel have the water of life as a gift from God. The temple and the rock are the source. Both are Jesus. He invites us to himself. He is the rock in the dry place. He is the glorious revealing of God in the temple garden space. He invites us to come and drink deeply from him. An unending, ever-deepening flow of life will come from him. And wherever the spirit flows from within us, abundant life will spring up around us. Trees will grow and nations will be healed. This is the beautiful promise that Jesus gives to his followers. But notice that the promise uh, taps equally into two different realities. One is the rock in the desert the place where life is hard and resources are scarce. And the other is the vision of Ezekiel, a beautifully designed temple and a restored Eden-like garden, a place of life and overflowing abundance. Uh, and the promise of Jesus is that rivers of living water will flow from his followers in both of these scenarios. Uh, some of us this morning, I feel like we're in a desert place, right? Where things are difficult, where resources are running dry. There's no food, there's no water, there's no permanent structures, there's no immediate sense of how do I get out of this desert? Where is the path forward? The sun is beating down on you. Life feels heavy and oppressive. Uh, you're in a place of weakness and frailty. You, your soul is thirsty. You are uh, longing for God. The valley of the shadow of death. This place where you just say, God, if you don't show up in this place, like it's over. I, I will not survive. 
I cannot make it through this season without you. And God says, in that place, rivers of living water will flow from you. And then there's the place of abundance. Uh, And some of you are there this morning. Uh, It's Ezekiel's temple vision. Uh, Life is beautifully designed and in sync and flourishing. Perhaps for you, there's this abundance and celebration and this sense of answered prayers. Perhaps you're in a season where uh, the Dead Sea uh, that has gathered from seasons past is being touched and transformed into something new uh, and life-giving. Your heart feels full. Your soul is on fire. Life is good. And Jesus says, in that place, rivers of living water will flow from you. And I've experienced both of these things. Uh, I've experienced moments where life felt like a desert, where it was dry and difficult and frustrating, when things just felt lifeless and empty, where there was unnecessary heartache and setbacks. Uh, Perhaps it's chronic pain that simply won't go away, uh, or or just a thirsty soul. You feel like, oh, Lord, I, I want to experience you and your presence, and and I'm just not. Uh, I've had moments and seasons of life where I've said, Lord, if you don't show up, if you don't meet me in this place, I will not survive. I cannot make it through this season unless you meet me here. Uh, We will have times in life where we feel spiritually dry and empty and disconnected. And we know God is real in our heads, but we just don't sense him in our hearts. Uh, if, if you're married, you will have times where your marriage is just hard. If you have kids, you have seasons where those kids are just difficult. And, and things are just not working the way that you want them to work. Uh, we, we can hit these desert seasons where everything feels out of sync where it feels as if the cards are stacked against you, as if everything you go to do is an uphill battle, as if everything is just off. Thorns and thistles, by the sweat of your brow, you will wrestle with the earth. And, and yet as you do it, it you just sense, oh, this, is, this feels cursed. The things that I'm trying to do, nothing is working out. I'm in the desert. And then there are other times when we get these tastes of of Eden, when we get these tastes of heaven on earth in the midst of our broken world, those rare moments when everything feels right, uh, where everything is as it should be, where your relationship with God and with others and, and with the universe itself is buzzing and humming and flourishing. We get these seasons of abundance. Wow, my, my marriage, my life, my school, my discipleship, my work, whatever it is that God's calling you to, 
in this season of life where you feel like, man, this stuff, that everything is just flourishing, well-ordered and flourishing. It's the definition of shalom. It's like this tangible peace that just pervades everything. And we've had those seasons too. Uh, seasons where uh, perhaps it's a, a really good uh, Sunday gathering or a season of uh, walking with Jesus that just feels particularly rich and beautiful. And you just say, wow, Lord, you're everywhere. You're in everything. I just am experiencing you in all of life. And it's just full of your presence and, and blessing and abundance. Um, sometimes we get these seasons of, of marriage or family or work life where everything's just falling into place where there's this abundance, where it's like, Lord, I, I don't even have to touch these things in order for them to turn to gold. It's like everything is just has uh, this, this blessedness to it and is flowing uh, with ease. A few weeks ago, my wife and I celebrated eight years of marriage. Uh, yeah, we're excited. Um, and we got this rare moment where we got to step away from the kids for an evening and we went out to dinner at a nice restaurant in downtown Spokane. And for one evening, we just ignored the price tag and just enjoyed God and this view over the river and enjoyed each other and some really good food and a glass of red wine. And it was just this amazing evening. And for a couple hours, we just got to reflect back on the last eight years, uh, how God brought us together and brought us through dating and into marriage and everything that he'd done for us uh, over those last eight years, the ways he, he guided us and provided for us and brought us to Spokane during that eight-year period about six years ago and all the things he had done since then. And it was just a few hours of shalom. It was just like all of, of that kind of background anxiety and stress and weight and thoughts and oh what do I have to do tomorrow and what about this and this oh, all of that was just set aside for a few hours and there was just this peace and presence of God so you just remembered oh my gosh Lord you've had us you've had us from the beginning you've been so good to us you've led us out of all of these valleys and over all of these mountains you've got us you're, you're gonna be there for us tomorrow and there was just a sense oh man this is this is an evening, this is a moment of, of shalom, of abundance. We get both in this life. Sometimes in the same day, we can feel in one season or, or one week or one moment, oh Lord, this, this is heaven on earth. This is, this is a restored temple and there's this river of life just flowing. This is just, there's just abundance here. Then we have other times where it ju life just feels like a desert. And, and we're looking around the desert and we're saying, Lord, there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. There's no shelter. All I can see is a big rock. Like, this is not going to work. This is not going to work for me. I don't know how to make it through this season. And yet what Jesus is saying at the festival of the tabernacles to his first followers as well as to us. It's like, if you come to me, if you're walking with me, if you place your faith in me, 
rivers of living water will flow from you in both seasons. When life is good and things are abundant and and resources are flowing and there's a sense of shalom, rivers of living water are going to flow out of that abundance into the dead and dying world around us. And when you're in the desert place, when things are difficult, when nothing is working the way that you would want or anticipate, and life is full of frustration and unmet desire and need, and the sun is beating down on you and you feel lost and alone, it says, in that place, I will meet with you and streams of living water will flow out of you in that place, in that season, in the desert. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning uh, just as we are. Uh, Some of us in a season of uh, Ezekiel's temple with this lush, beautiful garden springing up in every direction, with this uh, beautifully designed, aesthetically pleasing temple in the middle, with this abundance of living water flowing out of it, touching, transforming, changing the dead stuff into living stuff. And Lord, we, we can only uh, just praise you for what's happening around us for all of the dead things that are coming to life, for all of the abundance. And Lord, there are others of us who um, feel dry, uh, who feel empty, who feel uh, distracted or broken or uh, as if we were living in a spiritual desert. And the temptation in the desert is always to turn around and look back uh, at Egypt. It's always to look back at the place that we came from and say, oh man, that last season or that, that, those years I had before I followed Jesus and all of those uh, sort of uh, worldly comforts that I had and, and those vices and temptations and whatever it was that made me feel good in the moment back there, wow, that actually looks more appealing to me now uh, because this is awful because I hate being in the desert and, and I'm not sure how I can be sustained here without running back Uh, to uh, some of the things that uh, the world has to offer. And so, Lord, I I pray particularly for those who are here this morning and who are in a dry spell, uh, who maybe have inner turmoil and just don't feel at peace with you or with others or with life. Um, God, would you you meet us here this morning? Uh, Would you uh, reveal yourself? as the rock in the desert, as maybe the one that we look at and think, yeah, that is not the solution to my problem. My problem is that I'm thirsty and I'm in a desert. A rock is not going to fix that. It's not going to change that. And yet it's in that place where most of you reveal yourself. of living water.
middle of the desert where it has no business operating. It has no business being. This is going in that place counterintuitively. Rivers of living water will begin to flow. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that we would set aside sort of our doubt, our frustration, our maybe anger with you, with circumstance, with the season that we're in. And, and for just a moment, we would just set our eyes on the rock and just invite you to come. And in a moment, all of a sudden, Holy Spirit, you would just begin to well up in us, to fill us with your presence. Thank you. 